Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November episode of Always On EM. I'm Vank Bellamconda, and I am with the amazing Alex Finch. How are you today? I am doing wonderfully. Excited to learn about pediatrics. Me too. It's definitely going to be a hot discussion. First, though, aloha, Dr. Heather Enomoto. She is an emergency physician and the quality chair of Straub Hospital in Honolulu, Hawaii, and she truly made our day recently. She's the first of our listeners to email us since we started the show. We know you're all very busy, and we're grateful for the thousands of you who listen to us each month. In fact, We had a record number of downloads in the month of October and are excited to try and beat that this month in November. But back to Dr. Enomoto. You are part of our show's history now and truly made our day. Mahalo nui loa. I'm hoping that means thank you very much. Folks, we would love to hear from you too. What do you like? What would you like us to consider changing? And who should we be talking with? You can really send us anything. We'd love to read it. Where do you send it? Send it your emails to alwaysonem at gmail.com. Or you can connect with us on social media through Insta or X. As always, please consider writing a review of the show and subscribing to our podcast on whatever platform you're using. This really helps us out a lot, especially with search engine optimization. It's kind of geeky stuff, but it really makes a difference. You can do it while you're listening even, so you don't even have to stop listening to the show or take any extra time. Lastly, Before I introduce our amazing guest today, everyone in the United States, especially, but really around the world, we wish you the warmest Thanksgiving holiday ever. Whether you're with your community and family at home or at work, we're thankful to each of you and we'll be thinking of each of you. I'm feeling the heat to introduce our speaker. I've taken a lot of time. So she is the talented leader of our division of pediatric emergency medicine, Dr. Megan Kane. In addition to leading the division, she is a favorite of the residents and in fact has two favorite faculty awards to prove it. She's incredibly active in quality review and improvement of our pediatric EM practice. She elevates all of us by teaching us about pediatric EM and improving our skills in procedural labs. Megan, thank you so much for being our esteemed guest today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I know you had a burning desire to talk about a certain topic. What do you want to talk about? (laughs) I just love to talk about fever. I feel like I talk about it every shift, so important to kind of spread the word. We were really excited when you brought that up and specifically an area that both over the years Alex and I have talked about is neonatal fever. Am I right Alex? A hundred percent and it's something that I I feel is constantly on the move. The the dates every time I learn them they're changing there's new gray areas so I'm really excited to learn more today. Well, hopefully we can help everyone feel a little more comfortable. Absolutely. It's very scary for for the families and for the staff. And so thank you so much for joining us to talk about that. To me, this is all about middle of the night medicine. This is an exciting area for us to develop a concrete framework to work through these middle of the night cases. So kind of starting out, how do we define fever? Great question. So I think some people may have different numbers. Generally, we accept fever as being 38 Celsius or above, but 
the number acceptance elect populations, the true number on the thermometer or on the EMR or however you want to look at it, doesn't always make that much of a difference. So thinking of populations that it does matter for, so our oncology patients, so thinking of our fever and neutropenia patients, certainly that number can matter. For our really tiny infants, so our newborn infants under two months, that number can certainly matter. Potentially for other immunocompromised patients, there's specific numbers or if you have a central line, but your general relatively healthy child, the number on the thermometer isn't actually what really matters for how I'm going to care for the patient. Now, I remember with my very first son going to the pediatrician's office and they told me very specifically that there were certain temperatures in which I had to bring them to the emergency department. Of course, they didn't know I was an emergency physician and it gave me a lot of unsettled feelings. What is your take on the height of the fever and its relevance? Is there a number that you think all kids should be coming to the ED for? Great question. So in clinic, you might get that information if you call the nurse line, you might get that same information. I've had families that have told me that or you look on certain even Mayo endorsed websites. As long as you don't meet certain criteria, so you aren't locked in a hot car, that's going to externally raise your temperature, you're not on illegal drugs, your body's controlling that temperature. So there's no number where you're going to melt your brain, have a seizure. You might have seizure with fever, but that would be independent of just kind of that, like you're, if you're going to have seizure with fever, you're going to have seizure with fever. So I, there's no number that you have to come to the emergency room. I've seen plenty of children with really high fevers because of viruses. There's really nothing that we do differently to treat it. So it's a great question. And there's a lot of fear. Like their number was, their temperature was 105. I rushed right here. And then I gave them Tylenol before they came. And now they look great. Yeah, that fear of the number is something I think that we struggle with. And we do instill it when they're born. So the newborn nursery, we tell you, if your kid has a fever, come right to the emergency department. But we don't always do a good job of then backtracking and kind of instilling comfort with fever. Instead, we just make it this fearful thing without making people comfortable of when it's okay. That term newborn neonate, what is the exact time frame where, where you're thinking we have to be much more careful with fever? So we know that under two months of age is the highest risk for serious bacterial illness. So those are the infants that we're really going to care more specifically about what that number is of the fever. Once we get beyond two months of age, we know that that risk is a lot lower, so we can start to back off a little bit. We're starting to get our first round of vaccines. You have a stronger immune system. So really, it's under two months of age. And then again, certain high-risk populations, oncology patients. Most of those families are going to know who they are. Your subspecialty or your care team should already be kind of telling you that information. And even less than two months, the dates seem to change even from when I was a resident, I remember 28 days, now there's 21 days. How do you break these time periods down in terms of risk? That's a good question. And I think a lot of it has evolved recently. Back when I started my training, we talked about like the Rochester criteria, Philadelphia criteria, the Boston criteria, and there are all these different criteria for infant fever and when do you do LPs and when do you not? And there's been, I think, better research that's happened recently and so a more comprehensive paper was published 2021, I think was the year, with kind of a more consolidated recommendation for care. We know now that the highest risk of meningitis is going to be under 21 days. So there used to be some people that would practice and LP everyone under six weeks. That kind of drifted down to 28 days. And now actually we know 21 and under is the highest risk population. So we tend to say 21 and under, you get the whole workup. 21 to 28, actually, maybe we can do some of the workup. And then 28 and above, we can actually get a little bit more loose and 
kind of get a little bit, we don't necessarily have to do blood work or urine. We talk about maybe they have obvious bronchiolitis. So unfortunately, it gets a little muddier the older you get, <laughs> which is harder when we want the middle of the night, just I'm tired, I've got 100 things going on. If I can just kind of follow a guideline or pathway, that makes it a lot easier when you're not trying to have that cognitive burden. Speaking of guidelines and pathways, I am very lucky in my practice environment because Dr. Kane actually designed a a practice pathway on this very issue for us. Before we discuss some of the intricacies of approaching these patients, what is it like to develop a, a large practice pathway for something like that? That's a great question, and it's a big thing to tackle. I was lucky that the kind of comprehensive guideline was being developed, so there are already people who had had similar, been putting out similar ideas. So we used step-by-step, we used the PCARN one, which had come out right as before we developed our pathway. And so there was already some work in that area and tried not to recreate it, but rather take what other people had developed and say, how can we adapt this to our practice? We live in the ED, but we don't live in a bubble. We're working with the hospital team, working with ICU teams, infectious disease teams. So then you have to reach out to those groups. And our guideline is specific to our practice. So I found, you know, there's bumps along the way. So we started our guideline and we found, well, some of the hospitalists aren't as comfortable not LPing this certain population. So then rather than saying, this is what we're going to do black and white, rather we're going to talk to the hospitalists and kind of they want to have input on each case, then we can do that and build that into our guideline. And then it's, you know, now we're getting to the point where we can probably revisit and say, how has this been going? Can we maybe drop some things back? And the we know these kind of guidelines are now a little bit more consistent nationally because of these recent papers. And so now that this is being accepted nationally, can we tweak a couple other things so we can poke kids less and make it a little bit easier on parents and families? So it's a big undertaking, but it's also really rewarding to have this kind of consistent practice and know that what we're doing is evidence-based and we're doing what's best for the patients. And I think that helps families too of understand we're not just poking because we feel uncomfortable or we just, we know that this is the best practice and the best care for your child. You had mentioned that there were a couple of really high value papers that have come out. If for our listeners who say, I want to read the top two or three papers, you mentioned one in 2021, what would you recommend? It's really the 2021, I think it's the AAP Hi everyone, this is Alex jumping in after the interview. If you would like to read this paper in its entirety, it is the Clinical Practice Guideline, Evaluation and Management of Well-Appearing Febrile Infants 8 to 60 Days Old by Pantel and colleagues from the American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline. This is in Volume 148, Issue 2, the August 2021 edition of Pediatrics. And I had a chance to look through this in its entirety in preparing for the interview, and I think it's really phenomenal. If you're interested in learning more and really looking through all of the citations and and especially the evidence for all of the recommendations, this is a phenomenal place to start to dig into the literature. All right, back to the interview. Um, but that's really the more, most kind of definitive and accepted guidance at this point. There will be some people who say, you know, I'm not ready to not LP that 21 to 28 day old. And some people may vary their practice. But generally, I think that is really going to give you the best evidence and consolidation of all of these other papers um, kind of put into one place. I was wondering, before we jump into the details of this workup and the evidence, if you could take a step back and remind me being maybe a little older than Alex on this, why do we care? 
so what is the danger at this age group and are all these dangers equal like UTI and meningitis? Yeah, good question. So they aren't all equal. Certainly meningitis is the rare one that we all don't want to miss. UTI is going to be more common, bacteremia secondary, and then meningitis the least common. The biggest risks are these are newborns. They don't quite have a strong enough immune system. They aren't yet eligible for the vaccines that are really going to prevent the most serious illnesses. So you can get hep B at birth, but you aren't able to start getting pneumococcal vaccines, Hib vaccines. Those aren't until you're two months. So they don't have yet some of that kind of external, if you will, support for their immune system. And they also don't have great ways to tell us that they're sick. It's really, you know, six to eight weeks, you're going to start developing a social smile. So they don't really have that. All they do, as you guys know, is eat and poop and sleep. And there might be a day they don't do that as well. And is that because they're really sick? Or is that just because it's an off day? Because they were busy yesterday. So they just don't have the way to say that, mom, my head hurts. So we have less cues. And so we need to kind of use other things to guide us. So we know that the highest highest risk time frame and kind of infancy. And so that's why we're targeting. Hey, everyone. In considering the actual rates of bacteremia, we also wanted to share an interesting study from the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2018 by Powell and colleagues. The paper was titled Epidemiology of Bacteremia in Febrile Infants Age 60 Days and Younger. This is a really interesting paper that looked at 7,335 screened infants. Among these kiddos, 4,700, or 65% of the group, had blood cultures and were enrolled into the study. 84 patients in total of this group had bacteremia, which accounted for about 1.8% of the group. The study was really interesting in that it broke these patients down by week, essentially, to identify what week and what time period was the highest risk. In considering a 28-day cutoff, the prevalence of bacteremia in this group was about 3.1% versus the 29 to 60 days, which was 1.1%. What was unique about the study is it also looked by week in those 28 days. So prevalence of disease in week one, zero to seven days, was about 2.6%. From eight to 14 days, it was 5.3%, so pretty high. 15 to 21 days was 3.3%, followed by 22 to 28 days, where it was 1.6%. And you see this drop between 22 and 28, which raises some of the questions in this new pediatrics guideline that's discussed. And in case you're wondering, the rate of bacterial meningitis in this age group of 28 days or less was 19 out of 1,515 infants that were 28 days and younger, which was about 1.3% versus five of 3,246 infants aged 29 to 60 days. Okay, back to the interview. So it's midnight and a 15 day old registers and it says fussy question mark. I don't know what fussy question mark means, but my fussies always have question marks and, <laughs> and I have to try and figure out if they are fussy, if they're not, what's going on. <laughs> Mom says the child felt really warm. They didn't have a thermometer at home. Suddenly there's a lot of questions. My understanding is 21 and less. I appreciate you defining that clearly. So this is our highest risk group. How are we gonna define fever and what are the first few things that we're gonna think about in our as we're gearing up our evaluation here? Great question. And these ones are really hard. I would define fever as a temperature of 38, zero and above. If parents stay at home, 
it was 38 and they get to me and they're 37.7, I'm gonna trust it because I don't have a reason not to trust it. I struggle because sometimes people come in and they say, they were kind of warm and fussy. I took ear temperature, the first one was 37.6 and then 38.1 and then 37.8, all within 10 minutes. And then you sit there like, oh gosh, stop, just stop. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking in my mind. (laughs) Those ones are really hard. And I think it falls on the comfort of the, like you as the provider. I've had those cases and I just sit with the family and try and do a really robust shared decision-making of these are the things that I would worry about. If we want to believe that we had a fever and you're telling me your child isn't acting themselves, then then we would do all of these things. I don't want to scare you, but I also want to be clear about what my concerns are. On the other hand, two not fevers, one a fever. It's hard. Do we believe it? Sometimes I'll say, you know, we can watch you here for a couple hours, recheck a couple temperatures, see how your child's doing. Last thing I want to do is send you home and then they're 38.5 at home. So kind of watch them for a little bit. I sometimes do that as kind of a compromise situation. But certainly if if there's any risk factors, prematurity, untreated GBS and mother, then I'm going to be a little bit more in the, I think we should go down the road of doing the things but yeah that those ones are really tough and i i feel like with the more popularization of pet thermometers and we've been getting a little bit more of these kind of gray zone yeah so certainly if there's concern i will at least have them stay with me for a little while so i can recheck a couple temperatures and feel okay that they're not to a fever if there's any question or the kids something's funny i think you just kind of proceed with the evaluation when you're measuring the temperature in the ed and there's this question of what's going on. Is this always a rectal temperature with the exception of concern for neutropenia and stuff? Good question. This actually came up in our division recently. What we do in our practice is under 12 months, we do rectal temperatures in all patients to get the most accurate. We just find that if you try and do like axillary in a seven month old, they're wiggling and their armpit isn't very big. No way they can do an oral temperature. really matters if they're in a warm blanket or a cold blanket. <laughs> so, and in that age group, like I said before, like the actual number is maybe a little bit less important for how I care for them. But certainly in the neonates, we're going to be doing rectal temperatures. In a neutropenic patient, actually, we aren't going to do rectal temperatures. So that's a good point to make that if it's a patient who's at risk of neutropenia or no neutropenia from chemo, we actually want to avoid potential mucosal injury and then you could cause bacteremia. So we're going to actually avoid a rectal temperature in those patients. But our standard neonate who's healthy, we're going to do a... Are you adjusting the number based on the route? I am not making any sort of adjustments. Perfect. And then are you adjusting the age based on premature birth? Prematurity is built into kind of our pathway. So prematurity, you're going to adjust kind of their corrected gestational age down for the under two-month age group. So okay. so like if you're born before 36, I think is on ours, then that's considered high risk, like right off the bat, under 37 weeks, premature. Does that mean that the two month, like the 28 day mark adjusts? Down, I would. So I would adjust my days down. Yeah. So if they're born a month premature, then we are considering them vulnerable up to 58 days. Yeah, we're lucky in our EMR, their corrected gestational age shows up on the so I can say, okay. The oh, little, that's interesting. I, 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 I didn't notice that. that. I didn't yeah. see that. So I'll have their, I don't know if it's for the first six months or for first year, it'll show up what they were born at 37 and one, and they'll have CGA, so corrected gestational age next to that. So like how many days they are now. My children were, were thankfully not premature, but are we adjusting their immunization schedule mm-hmm. based on that? And if not, if the whole issue is that they haven't had access to their 
immunizations, should we be considering them vulnerable even after the... It's not fully the immunizations, although it's part of the reason. Part of it also is their immune system kind of building. And so if you're born early, you still need more time for your immune system to be as robust. So it's not fully immunizations. And like if there's a four-year-old with no immunizations, I'm not going to treat them the same as a four-day-old. So it's, you know, some families choose not to vaccinate. I may be, we can talk about this kind of separately. I may be, I may consider doing more things in a four-year-old, but I'm not going to necessarily treat them the same as a four-day-old just because they don't have vaccines. And I think really what I've struggled with these questions, but ultimately these questions are most germane to the 60-day-old and plus, because in Mm -hmm. less than 60, all of these scoring tools have high-risk criteria for which prematurity is usually one. And so it kind of funnels you back to that. But the question is whether somebody beyond 60 days, I think, am I counting them as less than 60 days, which is a really interesting, great question. And I think in general, I'm using my clinical gestalt, but oftentimes I'm going to be having a a serious shared decision making with the family about the fact that this patient might fall into what would more typically be a less than 60 day presentation. Yeah. To your question about vaccines, Depending on your degree of prematurity, you may be pushed back. So if you're born at 24 weeks, you might not be ready when you're two months old to get oh. vaccines. Okay. But generally, the like the NICU and places they'll start considering vaccinating once you've reached postnatal age of truly considered eight weeks from when you were born, or two months from when you were born. Got it. But obviously, it depends on kind of the health of the infant at that point. We've talked about some serious bacterial illnesses and just running through it. So I'm looking at this very, very small adult lying on the bed in front of me, and they're not giving me a social smile. We're tiny, and I'm worried about things like pneumonia, UTI, meningitis or encephalitis, acute otitis media, things like that. So I'm considering all these bacterial sources. Do I? Are there viruses I'm worried about too, or am I just saying generally... I'm happy it's a virus in this age group. Don't have to worry about it. I like viruses that we... That would, would cause big, big We need problems. to worry about, like HSV. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be the big one. Okay. So HSV is the one that, especially if there's any sort of high-risk exposure, whether through delivery or through family member with a cold sore. So certainly that's the, that's the big ticket one that we worry about. Under 21 days, we know is going to be higher risk. Known exposure, any sort of lisible lesions is going to be highest risk. So in our pathway and a lot of them recommend under 21 days when you're already doing the lumbar puncture just do the hsv testing the pcrs now are such a quick turnaround it's only a couple doses of acyclovir and you're potentially treating early which is can be life-saving for these infants so certainly hsv something to kind of keep on your radar i always ask parents about any possible exposures and so i think that's yeah important to not forget about hsv as a virus but something we do treat very differently so there have been a couple of orders that have gone in while I've been seeing other patients. They've uh, come in through triage and, and my team. And I noticed that one of the nasal swabs has already come back positive for a viral infection. So rhinovirus, something like that. Can we stop our workup? It depends on the age. Okay, let's talk say. that through. Because all of a sudden I'm ecstatic. Maybe I don't have to do an LP on, on this kiddo. Um, how does age factor in and is the kid still at risk for something bad? Yeah, so you can have two things at once. So we have kind of the standard COVID flu RSV swab, and Mm -hmm. then there's the 
robust catches a lot more viruses. So, I mean, I think if any given day I was tested, I'd just come yeah. back. I hesitate to use that, especially in a really high risk patient to say, this is what's going on. So under 21 days, and we know what's the highest risk period, I'm not going to change my course. And okay. that was really hard during the COVID peaks where these babies were coming in. They were COVID positive because whoever else had it in the family, we still proceeded down the course. Absolutely. And that was, I think, harder to kind of reason to families, but also my biggest kind of advocation for it was we don't know that this doesn't put them at different risk for serious bacterial illness. We, especially in the early parts of COVID, we didn't know enough about it. It's like, we just, we need to, we know that this is a high risk time period. So to be safe and most parents are understanding of it. Once we get to that 28 day window and I kind of skipped the 22, because let's say we had a fever in a 22 to 28 day old. The swab had already been done in triage because grandma has COVID or whatnot. If they got a swab and it was positive, I'd probably still do the blood and urine, but I would be less excited about going down the LP route, which we know we don't necessarily have to in that 21 to 28 day old. Once we get to 28 days, we can, or 29 days, sorry, so over 28 days, we get, we know we can be a little more hesitant in these known like patients. Okay. We likely don't have to do blood work or LP. There is some proportion of them that's going to have a UTI. So I think like three to 5% is what I had seen earlier today. We used to say 10% of kids with viruses could have UTI. So there's some percentage of them that will still have a UTI. So you kind of consider urine is kind of how we phrase it of like a discussion with the family about doing urine, but in that 29 and above group, but probably with a known viral illness don't have to do the blood work in the LP, and those are the two that are the most usually distressing to families. Agree. Urine can be too, but usually a little bit easier to capture urine. Hey everyone, if you're looking to do a deeper dive on this topic, I would again recommend the Clinical Practice Guideline Evaluation and Management of Well-Appearing Febrile Infants 8 to 60 Days Old by Pentel and colleagues. They have a section specifically describing what to do with a positive viral result. They summarize the literature and include a number of citations that indicate that a positive viral test probably does lower the risk to some degree of a serious bacterial illness. However, particularly in the 28-day and younger group, there's still sufficiently high risk of a bacterial illness that it warrants similar testing and treatment as viral negative infants. One particular recent study that they cite of interest is risk of bacterial co-infections in febrile infants 60 days old and younger with documented viral infections. And this was in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2018. This study looked at about 3,000 febrile infants who had viral testing performed. About 1,200 were virus positive, 44 ended up having serious bacterial illnesses, about 3.7%. This was compared with 1,745 virus-negative infants, among whom 222 had serious bacterial illnesses, which accounted for about 12.7% of that group. The study also did a subgroup analysis on those 28 days and younger. And among those who were virus-positive, 4.2% were found to have a serious bacterial illness, 2.6% had a UTI, 1.1% had bacteremia, and 0.8% had meningitis. Okay, back to the interview. If you are doing this workup, we often are getting things like the urine before we do the LP because the kid's immediately going to pee when we're doing the LP. 
if the urine comes back positive, a part of me always wants to say, that's great, we have an easy solution. Can we stop there? That's a good question. And the AP, so our logarithm, which we kind of created just before, would say if their urine is positive, we should still do a lumbar puncture. Mm -hmm. But there's other kind of the national guidelines would say you could probably stop. Interesting. There's not great data and that, I don't think they say that there's enough data to know for certain that we feel confident saying we can stop, but we could. And usually we don't have the urine, like we usually do urine, then blood, then LP is kind of the way it goes. So usually the blood and the urine are kind of coming back around the same time. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, oh, the urine's positive, but I have an elevated CRP. Yep. And, I, yeah. and so it's those those These caveats about like using the procalcitonin, using the blood work in conjunction with the urine that we we don't know that we have as much data that we for certain can stop, but we probably can not do the LP. So I think it's, again, a co shared conversation with the family and yeah. potentially your hospitalist team. Because if I'm going to start antibiotics, I'm going to be admitting this newborn baby. Yeah. So I can call the hospitalist and say, here's the situation. Baby looks great. Are you comfortable if we just proceed with not pursuing the lumbar puncture? And that can be so shared decision-making with both your the rest of your team, because we're not a silo. We're making yeah. sure the inpatient team is on board with the plan. Because the question I think we're asking that can be hard for me to wrap my mind around is there's a UTI. Now from the UTI, do we have an occult bacteremia? And potentially from the occult bacteremia, could I have some sort of CSF seeding? Is that kind of the progression of events that is occurring in, a, in an occult fashion? Yeah. And the data would suggest that it's exceedingly unlikely that you're going to go from urine to blood to meningitis. So we're probably safe stopping. But... I don't know that there's enough data yet for creators, especially definitively, we should stop. And that's what I thought was such a great aspect of your guideline is that at a lot of these places, it says, speak to a hospitalist on call and decide because it is, we're all a family taking care of this patient. So I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. And I think one thing that they find in the hospital setting that I hadn't really thought of it in this way is that in the ER, we'll be like, great, labs look good. We don't need to do an LP. And then they get to the hospital setting and they want the LP. And then the family's like, well, they said they didn't. Now you want it. What's changed? And so I always try and really reinforce with families. Right now, we don't have signs that we need to proceed with this. But the hospital team might reassess the vital signs and think that we probably need to proceed. And so I, I'd say a not now, but, but I don't want to say not ever. So It's right the same now, courtesy we, we want the outpatient providers to give us. Yes, Le leeway yeah. to make our own decision. Yeah, mm -hmm. so when, yeah, exactly. If you're referring somebody to us, these are things they might consider. When I think about UTI, we've kind of talked about it as though it's a binary, like there's a test that says somebody has a UTI. I know in the adult world, we can't say for sure that there's UTI based on urine testing. How is that viewed in PEDS? Great question. And it's, I think it's even trickier. Infants in particular aren't, they're not holding their urine for as long. They tend to be kind of going more often throughout the day. So we know that they might not have positive leukocytes like we would expect with a, like they might have time to develop that. That So our culture is really going to be our most definitive, but of course we aren't going to have that right away. We're going to use our UA results as best as we can, but that's why maybe we consider relying a little bit more on CRP or procalcitonin, you know, in a three-year-old with urine complaints, I'm not getting serum labs because they can tell me more. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit trickier, I think, than because our urine can, initial studies can be negative when in reality they do grow something. And considering at this point in our high-risk patient and you're starting this big septic workup, 
I'd love to hear pro tips from both of you about how this sequence goes. Is there anything in particular that you would throw out as recommendations for any part of this workup? When does LMX go on? All these kinds of things. (laughs) Like, how can we make this the least traumatic experience for our families more than the patient probably? It's a good question. And I think it's being able to be flexible with what your team's ready to do. We try and capture urine, like you mentioned, because usually trying to draw blood or do an LP is going to stimulate them to pee. Absolutely. Um, They're peeing frequently, which is helpful because they'll be making more urine and hopefully feeding. Certainly if they haven't been feeding well and you're worried they might not have enough urine, then maybe you need to get access and give them a fluid, they're going to get urine. So kind of considering that piece of it too. So lumbar puncture, I tend to leave as the last thing, partially because I know I mean, if they look ill and I am worried about their ability to tolerate it, then I can give them antibiotics empirically. And they call it the biofire, whatever your PCR testing for on CSF. So that's an option kind of even if you've had to treat them. But I think being flexible with when and how you kind of every step along the way. And so like, let's say your first line, you can't get access what's your next shot or you get blood work, but then the IV blows, are you going to go with IM antibiotics Kind of being flexible and knowing what, how you're going to pivot is how do you do it? Or is one way I like to think of it. We'll often do if you cath and they, there's no urine that comes back, they'll leave the catheter in, but capped. I don't know how many times it's really successful because often they just pee it back out. Um, but that's one thing you can consider. There's evidence about using like for urine crid So if family's really hesitant about catheter, and especially in boys, it's easier to catch a midstream. But kind of some massage and some people use kind of cool cloths or something massage in the suprapubic region, and that can stimulate urination. So we had the unfortunate experience. Uh, my middle son uh, was really unresponsive uh, when he was a neonate at one point and had a big fontanelle and it was really scary moment but we came into the emergency department and things did not go very smoothly Um, I think there was obviously a huge dynamic that everybody wants to do their very best because I was there and whatnot but it gave me a lot of chance to reflect on it and I came up with a a process that I go through um, to make things smoother I think for the team and family and I really, I type a quick word file of the order of which I want things to happen, and I print out several copies of that, and I give it to the family, um, and then the nursing staff, and I tape it to the door, and I give it to lab and everyone, and um, it begins with with putting, you know, uh, topical anesthetics um, in different areas for both lumbar puncture and for the blood, and then bladder scanning to see if we do see enough urine, and then after the bladder scan, if there is, then I, I always give patients the op or the families the option for intranasal versed, and then I will empirically put the child on some oxygen to alleviate any other concerns, give them the versed, do the cath, and then follow up with the IV and then the LP, and everybody's lined up outside the door, and all the equipment is ready for every stage. Um, Certainly there are occasions where you can't get the IV and we'll pivot and move, um, but it's made it, made everything a lot easier. I found that a lot of the anxiety that family, we experienced and others has to do with the, not wanting the child to suffer through this. And having the Versed takes that whole thing, takes the intensity level way down so that everybody can be on the same page. The child won't be suffering. And um, 
and it's gone really, really well since then. I haven't given Versed in this age group. And so this is just intranasal Versed? Intranasal Versed. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great way to put, making sure everyone on the team is in the same. These are Headspace. the steps. These are, this is the order we're going to do things in. Yeah. Having sweeties available. In a teenager, when I do a lumbar puncture, I'm certainly going to use local. And some people will avoid it in infants. And I'm going to use local in an infant. It's not going to feel good to put a needle in your back. So why don't I numb you up? Um, and so... They're not tiny adults, but they also are going to feel pain. So how can we keep them comfortable? And making sure mom has what she needs, too, I think is important. Does she have a snack? Great point. I think parents' anxiety, they need to take a step outside for five minutes and get some fresh air. And so kind of assessing that can help bring down some of that anxiety in in the room and make everybody more comfortable and feel a little bit more human. We're Um, talking about pro tips. What's what's the best holding position? I trained mostly doing side-lying for my lumbar punctures. There's evidence that side-lying or sitting up are equally effective. And so I think it's really often on what the holder feels comfortable with, because if you the baby's kicking and moving and not laying still, there's some devices now that actually hold an infant in the seated position. We're looking into Million that. Million dollar idea. Wow. I love it. I know. So it takes that like holder variability out of the that's nice equation. So those are, there are things that are kind of being developed. I find neonates to be, or like little kids to be much easier than our adult LPs. Mm-hmm. I've never reached for the ultrasound for them or anything. Yeah, um, a big adult. Oh, I don't want to go anywhere near. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really tough. Yeah, I, you get, I don't know, if I get an LP needle longer than 1.5, <laughs> I get more nervous. Fit needle. A thin teenager is fine, but... How much fluid do you take in a little tiny baby? Is that... Great question. Those are big vials. Probably going to be a little bit institution specific. What tests are you ordering? And each institution is going to have a minimum volume for what tests you're ordering. Mm-hmm. You want the culture, right? That's mm-hmm. the one you care about the most is the culture. Everything else is cake, especially as I said, these kids, if you're LPing them, you're going to start antibiotics. So you're going to be going down that road. So I think... I usually try and get one cc in each vial, Perfect, so that's yep. four. And that here, that would cover me getting a culture, getting cell counts. The gram stain comes with the cell counts HSV. with the culture. And then, yeah, I'm going to get the HSV PCR. Usually that's still enough for them to add if they want to add, like, the BioFire PCR for the bacterial meningitis things. So, But usually four is going to be adequate for just kind of perfect. I haven't had to do this since the pandemic. And are you doing any specific CSF testing for COVID or novel viruses? No, I mean, the nasal swab. Really? Yeah, but it, uh, there's no specific. I don't know if there's, I mean, we have long COVID and other things, but babies actually do really well with COVID. So nasal swab for that, but no specific viral. For the empiric antibiotics at Mayo Clinic, what types of antibiotics do we we give our kiddos? Good question. So a little bit, again, dependent on age. And we actually, in our guideline, had put it in an order of what we think is kind of the most prudent or timely, um, how we want to do it. Because we found there, that, you know, not only is what are you giving, how much are you giving, but what order do you want to give them in? And if you're in the middle of the night and you're flustered and you're doing 100 things, then you just don't really have to think about it. That's never happened. So we're going to start with the cephalosporin, and it depends again on age. So ceftaz is what we're going to do in the 28 and under age group. We're going to switch to ceftriaxone as we get a little bit older. So 29 and above is ceftriaxone. So that's our first one is our cephalosporin. Why, uh, why the difference there? Ceftriaxone can cause disconjugation of bilirubin. We already know your high risk of hyperbilly in that first month of life. So rather than exacerbate the problems we're already having by Let's urban. just add a couple things to the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah. So yeah, we're going to switch. So we, Ceftaz is our first line. It used to be Cefotax, but that's like no longer available, I think, anywhere. This is the first line. If you did have it, would you prefer Cefotaxing? 
Um, I ask because there might be parts of our listenership that might still have access to it. I guess if you have access, so we, it's what we used to use. I guess I don't necessarily prefer one over the other, but and I think they're probably similar in terms of like dosing frequency. Those things can play a role. So we've got a cephalosporin, yep. and the cephalosporin is is rolling. Mm-hmm. What do I order next? next? So for us, if you're considering HSV, we would actually do acyclovir as our second because we don't want to miss that. And so, especially because your cephalosporin is really going to cover most things. It's not going to cover viruses, so acyclovir second. And then your third, what we do is ampicillin, which is going to cover group B strep, which you're going to get some of that already from your cephalosporin. It's also going to cover listeria, which is less common. The classic board question. <laughs> so cephalosporin. Also, cephalosporins are generally a push, so it's not like it doesn't take a long time. Yeah. And not only are you thinking about what are you giving, but how long does it go in? How long is my access taken away from anything? Yeah, that's, right. How long is this going to be it, delaying? It's like some... years long. It's like one of those things that suddenly I'm running it and... Yeah, how long is it delaying? Yeah. yeah. And then also thinking if there's a high risk for some reason of skin soft tissue or MRSA, you might add Vanco depending okay. or if they look really ill. And again, Vanco is another long running. So you don't want that to delay something else that could be quicker and probably higher priority. So if you're going to do acyclovir, depending on age, and then ampicillin, and then again, if you're going to do vancomycin, depending on risk factors. So we've got our antibiotics running, and I've got the urine cooking, and I did my LP. It was a champagne tap, in case you're wondering. Everyone's (laughs) high-fiving. It's it's a good night. And so we've gotten some blood work going. Two cultures or one culture? We typically just do one culture. Okay. Send the send the one culture and get some inflammatory markers cooking. Now I've admitted my twenty one day old and or I guess a fifteen day old was the case, and we're moving on to our next room. And in our next room we have a twenty two day old. What is going to be similar or different beyond 21 days? In my mind, this is kind of a gray area. I have to pull up the wonderful pathway you developed every time to say, hey, what's similar? What's different here? And again, we're adjusting for prematurity Yeah. for this mark. Yes, that would be a high-risk feature. That would, yeah, the, put them in the high-risk category. Yes. What, what becomes different is now we aren't necessarily dedicated to the lumbar puncture. So if they're... 22 to 28 days, we would still recommend hospitalization. But if they are low risk, so they have low risk history, and then we get blood and urine and those are low risk, then we can say this is likely not a serious bacterial infection. We would still recommend hospitalization for observation, but then we don't have to do lumbar puncture and we don't necessarily have to do antibiotics. If you're going to do antibiotics for any reason, then we would recommend lumbar puncture. It it ne- doesn't necessarily change what I do in the ER, but it's going to change potentially the management for the floor team and make their lives a lot easier when discussing disposition and antibiotic therapy kind of duration, those kinds of things. So if antibiotics, yes, LP, but in this age group, you wouldn't necessarily have to do a lumbar puncture if they remain low risk ba- based on urine and blood work. Our caveat in our institution is talking with our hospitalists, as we've kind of mentioned, because some of them aren't necessarily as comfortable with this 22 to 28 age group not having a lumbar puncture. Or maybe there's something when you discuss with them, they're like, yeah, we should probably do it. So we they would prefer that we talk to them. But I think they're becoming more comfortable with deferring it in the otherwise low-risk, well-appearing infant. So basically, we're talking about observing a patient with a fever who is at risk for bacterial illness, and we're not starting antibiotics. That's kind of one group. And then the other group is we diagnose something like a UTI, 
we do need to start antibiotics, but in that group, we're still going to do the full septic workup. Yeah, in that age group, we're still going to. Okay, that's really helpful to clarify. So then, so we have that 22 to 28 days, and then we have basically 29 to 60 days is Mm -hmm. now our next step down in risk. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the big takeaways for how that approach might be different? So in this age group, we start talking about if they're low risk, could they even potentially go home? In the 28 days and younger, they're all going to stay in the hospital, whether depending on their age and risk factors, whether it's with antibiotics and LP or not. But this age group, potentially there's a disposition that's not staying in the hospital, which is, I think, a big change from prior. It becomes a lot more variable. I like to do these pathways in terms of visual because that's how I do it. And I look at the two different pathways and I'm like, there's a lot more words on the 29 to 60 days. (laughs) 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 It's a lot less straightforward because if they're low risk, we do blood and urine studies and they're still low risk and they have access to transportation. Parents feel comfortable. They are reliable. We could potentially have them follow up in clinic and not have to be admitted to the hospital. Those are a lot of ifs. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, I, something I really appreciate about this is we're really taking into account a lot of social factors, right? Where this is all about trying to connect our patients with it, as many resources as they need. And I think that's really thoughtful. Yeah. And, you know, considering, is it a snowstorm? Mm-hmm. So there's been times in the winter where the kid comes into the fever and they're low risk, but I'm like, I don't know that it's actually safe for them to leave. So maybe we keep them tonight and they look great in the morning and they go home and then they Mm -hmm. don't need to try and get back for a clinic visit the next day. It feels uncomfortable sometimes to do that, but you have to consider those other dynamics as part of the care of the child or the family. And also in this age group, we start talking about like, if there's a viral illness like bronchiolitis, do we need to do blood work or urine? Or can we say they have bronchiolitis, maybe do urine, consider that because we know there is a risk there, but potentially we don't even need to do anything. So we kind of open up even more of a, of a pathway to do less, which okay. again, always leaves a little bit of more discomfort, I think in our, yeah. like in our position as the, as the person making those decisions, that makes it a little bit trickier. Who's the mental model that you have for somebody who you diagnose with bronchiolitis in this age group and doesn't get anything else versus the one? Usually that's going to be the, like, they had one temp of 38.1. They clearly have RSV. Everyone at home has viral symptoms. They're 55 days and very robust and feeding well, and parents can access follow-up care. Yeah. Like, they're going to be the ones that I feel pretty good, and family feels very comfortable kind of not doing the things. But certainly if they're smaller or not feeding well or there's other things that they're sleepier or something that's off, I'm going to be less excited about not potentially pursuing other things. The pandemic recently has made us reframe a lot of things. Can you speak a little bit about how it has affected neonates and parents of neonates with relation to fever? Are you seeing COVID change anything about that? Good question. It hasn't changed necessarily how we treat or how we kind of do these pathways. Certainly infants, neonates can get COVID. We see parents that have it around delivery time. I feel like for a while it was kind of heartbreaking because then moms were trying to be separated or like masking and they've got a newborn and that's horrible. Um, But in general, the neonates do really well with COVID um, in terms of like long-term sequelae or serious illness or things like that. I really, I personally haven't seen that in the neonate population specifically, you know, nearly as much as it impacted our older populations. Thinking of things like MIS-C or MISC, 
Again, I didn't really see that in the population. Others may have, I saw a little bit more in older kids, so there may have been some impact there. But in general, infants really did great with COVID. We would still do the LP in the labs and the kids that were the age that that would be indicated by our pathways. Most of them really did fantastic clinically, which I think was a reassuring thing to families to be able to tell them like they do great. And then we don't, you know, adults, there's Paxlovid and all these other things. We don't really have that the same way. You know, there's not outpatient treatment for COVID for infants. If they're sick inpatient, that would be a different story. But because they do so well, we haven't really needed to go down that road. The other question I have is related to transfers. Are you seeing any transfers to our center for neonatal fever workup? Because of COVID or just in general? In general. Sometimes. Uh, it tend, I guess it depends a little bit on the capability of the referring facility. We would encourage what facilities to be able to do the workup there so that if antibiotics are indicated, they can be started before transfer. Or depending on the age, if they're old enough to get the workup, they're low risk, they go home and follow up rather than transfer for the workup and then go home. So sometimes there are facilities where people don't feel comfortable performing a lumbar puncture, or they can't get blood work or other things. So sometimes there are transfers, but generally I think most shops are doing it in-house. Um, and a lot of places have the capability of taking taking care of low-risk infants, and so not many of them necessarily have to be transferred unless they're needing ICU care or other things. I think that this really speaks to today's topic, though, because I will say in working in telemedicine, and we've worked shifts together where you're in peds, I'm in telemed, and this is not an uncommon call from a provider who is dealing with one of these gray area day deadlines and saying, you know, I'm at this many days, what, what do I have to do? And the patient, you know, I'm, I'm thinking the patient's probably gonna end up in your ED, what, what needs to get going? And that's what, why I think this is such a great topic to discuss today, because it feels, it feels like a really big decision we're making. There's a lot of needles going in. <laughs> and, uh, and I understand why people perseverate over this. And, and I'm always grateful to see you in peds and bounce, bounce ideas off of you. Sure. And we, when we developed this, we tried to reach out to the health system and kind of incorporate them into this process, at least kind of for awareness that this is what we're using, that we do have staff that work at multiple health system sites, that this is probably going to be kind of called on to be used and so wanted them to feel comfortable with it and certainly reach out to us if there was things that weren't working well for their sites. So we, we did try and incorporate kind of health system and others so that it was feasible and you'll notice on like order sets and things, there might be multiple medication options, kind of like we talked about, because some facilities might do amp and gent, and that's what they have readily available in their Pixis, and they don't have a 24-7 central pharmacy. So we tried to be a little cognizant of maybe some of those resources or shifting, depending on where you're working at. Well, you highlighted the flexibility is such a key piece in management of these children, and so it makes sense that it would be built into your guideline. Like <laughs> we do our best. I often grow when I listen to other consultants and experts explain things to patients. It's not often anymore that I get that privilege. If you could t give me that opportunity to imagine seeing you talking to a family about their 15-day-old with a fever and what they have to be worried about and why you want to do all these things. Do you mind pretending that you're doing that so we could all hear that conversation? Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, Should I be a concerned parent? <laughs> so baby Johnny had a fever, which is what brought you here today. And I'm really glad that you brought him in. Uh, it's one of the things we tell you in the nursery, which is probably why you're here. We worry when infants have a fever because they don't have many ways to communicate with us how they're sick and what, what's causing that fever. Um, particularly, we know in the first few months of life, and especially the first three weeks of life, you're 
at higher risk of having a serious bacterial infection. What does that mean? And it's an infection that can be um, potentially very dangerous. Um, and so we need to be able to evaluate for that infection and treat for that um, as we, while we're trying to kind of figure out what's going on. When we think about serious infections, I think about where could those infections be? We think about in the urine, could there be like a pneumonia? Could there be infection in the blood? And the one we all worry about is something called meningitis or infection in the fluid that's around the brain. This is a lot of information. And so please stop me at any point if you're feeling like, you know, you need to ask questions. How do we test for these infections? So we try and target the highest risk areas to give us more information about what's going on. So like I said, we worry about urine infection. That's the highest really risk one in this age group. How do we check for that? We use a catheter to get a urine specimen to check the urine. We have some quick tests that give us some information and then we do what we call a culture, try and grow bacteria from the urine. Similarly, we get some blood work. Um, so we have to poke to get some blood work and that gives us information about signs of infection in the blood or other places. Um, and we also do a culture of that in, as well. And then lastly, the place we worry about is meningitis or the fluid around, that, around the brain. The fluid around the brain is the same fluid that drains down along your spinal cord. In order to test that for meningitis, we do what we call a lumbar puncture or a spinal tap. That sounds really scary, but it's something we do very commonly and feel very comfortable doing. Um, but it really gives us the best information about whether or not your child has meningitis and if, if and how we can treat for that. So I just kind of want to stop and ask if you have any questions right now, and then we'll talk about kind of next steps. Aspirational, and that's that's <laughs> what I miss about being a resident is getting getting to work side by side together and, and learning all your techniques for, for these middle of the night febrile kits. Is there anything we talked about, urine, lungs, CNS? In the neonatal period, should I be worried about bowel things like necrotizing endocolitis and other things that could cause fever? And what signs or symptoms would I be picking up that will change my course? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a, a good point to not miss other things. Neck certainly is a risk in the, especially in the first few weeks of life and more particularly in their preterm infants. Then I would expect there would be some sort of kind of GI distress, whether it's a really enlarged abdomen that's tight and very uncomfortable. You know, you put a diaper on and they are like really uncomfortable, firm, tender belly, um, likely having some vomiting depending on how severe they can have hematochesia, those kinds of things. So generally, if you have a febrile infant, but they're eating well and their belly soft, I don't necessarily do an abdominal film to look for neck in all of them. But if they're a premature baby with question of their belly, that's a very reasonable thing to think, or a reasonable kind of road to go down. And starting with a plain kind of a chest abdomen you can do in a, ba a baby gram, if you will, a good way to look for what's their bowel gas pattern you so that's a pretty simple and low risk if you have any concerns and i know that it's uncommon in general for children to have surgeries before they leave the hospital after birth but if we're seeing somebody who had say heart surgery or something and has a fever in these high risk time periods in addition to thinking about what we're thinking do you have any advice for us to uh, taking care of these complex kids? When in doubt, I always reach out to whether it's the surgeon or the subspecialist and just say, hey, this kid's here. Um, they usually want to hear from you. I have had a former 22-weeker, which is astounding to me, who came back before their due date. They'd left the hospital before then, um, came back and I saw them and it was actually a concern for neck. And so I just called the NICU and said, hey, this is, this is your baby. I just want to make sure I'm doing all the right things. Um, and usually they're going to be very lovely and willing to talk through the things when you're uncomfortable or calling the hospitalist and saying, hey, I've got this like gray zone baby. 
this is what my thoughts are. Um, and I think others are always willing to kind of talk through it. Often is nice to just kind of, this is my logic and have someone else say like, yeah, or consider this. And they might bring up an idea that you hadn't yeah. thought of. So I always kind of, if, I, if in doubt, lean on somebody else to help me either feel like I'm confident in what I'm doing or give me some guidance on how I can reconsider what I'm doing. Do you have any last words for the for the listeners about neonatal fever? And I, I don't know if I brought this up before. So we 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 instill the fever fear in the newborns. Um, but then also we need to just kind of also instill the comfort with fever as babies get bigger. So it's finding that kind of balance there of we really worry about fever in those first few months. And then let's how can we kind of step down that fear and help families feel more comfortable with that too. Well, thank you for your time. This has been, great. been a wonderful review. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.